May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. And may my words rest in the covenant we have made together. Amen. Please be seated. What we call the Bible is derived from a Greek Phoenician word, which literally translates as the books or library. Genesis, which means in the beginning, is not the chronological beginning of the first book in the library because it was written much later, probably after the return from Babylonian exile. In reality, the Hebrew Bible is a collection of writings trying to figure out a theological and social question. If we are God's people, why did we fail? The reason I bring this up is because much of what we heard today in our lessons has much to say about failure and struggling to understand the nature of God and what is expected and how humanity sometimes, with good intentions, continues to live with a dark veil of understanding unable to see, know, and exist. In the beginning, long before food, shelter, farming, and the formation of tribes, we are told in Genesis that God creates, and we are created in God's image. And when this is done, we, along with God, must rest. We are to rest. Our livestock is to rest. Our land is to rest. Our servants are to rest. And even God must rest. Not pray, not attend a church meeting. Sorry about that. <laughs> we must rest. And in the beginning, this was God's first teaching about distributive justice and equitable living offered by the commandment, simply to rest. Now, here's what's so very interesting about the nature of God found in this passage. If you don't rest, and if you don't follow God's edict, there is no punishment. That's important to know. From the very beginning, we are given free will and have the freedom to dismiss this mitzvah, which is a Hebrew word for law or rule, and God does not punish. But we must live with the consequences. In the beginning, humanity was given responsibility and stewardship over the earth and each other, and God created abundance in the world with enough not only to exist, but to thrive. There is no mention of punishment if we fail. And if humanity destroys our natural resources and destroys one another, once again, there is no punishment, but we must live with the consequences. 
It turns out that we, as a people, are very good at destroying our planet, and we're extremely good at killing one another. And we have not, and we are not very good at realizing the consequences of our choices and behavior. I hope by now you're starting to slowly be able to connect the dots towards our appointed lessons today. In our psalm, we hear of taking refuge in God and being a part of God's family and that we are protected. But we are told when people run after other gods, they shall have their troubles multiplied. We are not told of retribution or punishment. What happens? They must suffer the consequences of their decision. In Galatians, Paul is addressing choices as well, but it's a little bit more nuanced. Now, early in the church, they totally misunderstood the meaning of the phrase desires of the flesh, which over the years has been translated as sins of the flesh. Now, here we have two problems. The first is a theological understanding taken from Deuteronomy, which is the last book of the Torah, where we see a shift in trying to understand God's nature. But Deuteronomy was compiled by the authoritarian priestly class, which thought in terms of deeds and punishments. That's why Deuteronomy ends with Moses proclaiming a long series of blessings and curses turning a supportive God into a thunderbolt striking Zeus, a byproduct of Hellenization. Now, this misunderstanding about desires of the flesh eventually gave Christian clergy permission to peer into bedroom windows to let people know who is saved and who is going to hell. That's clerical job security. And we still have this happening today. And this is one of the reasons people look at Christianity with disdain, portraying those who are religious as angry, smug people, pointing fingers at others with condemnation and smug indignation. All of this surrounding bad scholarship and a macabre fascination with human sexuality. Our passage from Galatians is an ethical argument, talking about personal freedom and self-desires becoming more important than equal and fair distribution of a fruitful and abundant life. Paul is addressing people living in a Roman province, and he's going to use their language they understood, which is Roman imperialistic language. The people of Galatia totally understood Paul's laundry list of desires of the flesh. It was all around them because that was part of Roman culture. Gratification of personal desires was a perk of Roman citizenship. See, that's how Rome seduced the conquered into loving their oppressor. Then we take a look at Paul's list of names 
Uh, uh, Paul's list naming the fruits of the Spirit. Things like generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, these can only take place when you're in relationship with others. Paul's list is not based on selfish desires. They are based upon society and interpersonal relationships. Now, our gospel today is very close to what Paul is saying, but uses different metaphors, especially if you look at the passage as a parable. And sometimes, if you're confused about a gospel passage, treat it like a parable and see what you can understand. Jesus is asked if a Samaritan village should be destroyed by a Zeus, Deus, like fireball. And what do we know in the beginning and with Jesus? He says no. They must live with their consequences. Later on in the gospel, people are offered to follow Jesus, but first have to take care of personal needs. And the gospel, using grandiose language, we are told of self-desires to bury a parent or say goodbye to family. Jesus' lesson, when you think only of yourself, you can't participate in bringing about the kingdom of God. Now, here's the big question. How does this happen? And where is this disconnect? Last Sunday, Mother Judy preached about demons. And yes, they can sometimes be explained as mental illness or metaphors for Roman occupation. But I believe we still have demons all around us, and they have names. They were present in the first century, and they are present with us today. They are right under our noses. And they have been accepted like this when people say, that's just the way things are. All three Gospels share a story about Jesus after baptism, being led out in the wilderness when he's hungry and thirsty and sleepy and physically weak. He is approached by the great tester of God. You know this story. But I think sometimes we pay more attention to Jesus' pithy answers than looking at the temptations. In his weakened state, Jesus has offered the ability to turn rock into bread to ease hunger. He has offered the chance to rule all kingdoms of the world. He has tempted to jump off a cliff and defy gravity. There they are, three demons, the same demons we have with us today, and yes, they have names, gluttony, power, and might. And all of our institutions are infiltrated with these demons. Jesus knew it, the evangelists knew it, the prophets knew it, the psalmists knew it, Paul knew it, and God knows it as well. Because he says the rain will fall, the rain and sunshine will fall on the good as well as the evil.
The demon named gluttony allows us to live in gross opulence and others to fall asleep under a pavement freeway overpass. The demon of gluttony is responsible for 10.7 million children living with food insecurity. And the demon of gluttony is now jumping for joy because our judiciary system will help more children possibly enter the world to live without love, hope, and care. The demon of power does all it can to help leaders reign over others, imposing ideologies based upon personal aggrandizement and selfish desires. The demon of power looks at profit over and above respect for the earth and its natural resources. The demon of power rewards some with huge wages and others barely able to exist. The demon of might condones violence first and asks questions later or invades another country simply because it wants to. The demon of might invades logic, suggesting that more guns in the hands of individuals create a peaceful existence. You see, these three demons work together. But so does the Holy Trinity. In the beginning, God said it. He said, it is good. We are good. Nature is good. All is good. Jesus showed us that we can refuse to participate with demons and that in order to bring about the kingdom of God, we must put aside personal desires which hamper the flourishing of peoples. Paul teaches that we should choose to live an existence based upon selfishness, or we can embrace the non-dual way of life based upon joy, peace, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But more importantly, today we are taught that God is not about punishment. However, we must live with our consequences. Amen.